We're going to look at the ending part of uh, Acts chapter 6 today, and I'm somehow in Zephaniah, which is not going to help me very much. There we go, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. So uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing uh, the first time to the church at Corinth, um, he wrote that it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And the scriptures, as you go through them and as we read through them this year, we'll see that the scriptures have a lot to say about the subject of faithfulness. It is a key characteristic, uh, certainly not just in our Christian service, but even more so just in our day-to-day Christian living. And honestly, uh, faithfulness, I think, is a rapidly disappearing virtue in our 21st century culture. It is very rare to find faithful people, people that you can count on and people that are consistent, people who are dependable. And there is very little uh, commitment to anything today in our society. We're seeing generations coming up who don't want to commit to anything. They don't want to commit to a business. They don't want to commit to a church. They don't want to commit to their marriages. And the the problem is that we live now kind of in this age of disposable relationships. And even the term faithfulness is a term that you don't even really hear very much today. And in fact, go ahead and Google it. Maybe not right this minute. But Google this when you get home and you'll see that most of the search results that come up are going to be different sort of Christian Bible-based blogs or sermons or it's just not a commonly used term in the mainstream. And about the only time that you do still hear it used is maybe when somebody's talking about their dog. Oh, you know, my old faithful dog or, you know, my old faithful car or my old faithful wife or husband, right? My faithful husband it's a, it's it's right it's a word that's kind of become reserved for like retirement parties you know after 25 years of faithful service and then they you know they give the guy or they give this woman a, a gold watch or something like that that's back in the day when people actually used to work for the same company for 25 years it's just not a quality that's valued by society but it is a virtue that is absolutely cherished by god And we looked a little bit in our study of Matthew chapter 25. Remember the Lord Jesus told us a parable about faithfulness. And this morning as we continue on in Acts chapter 6, I think we're going to see a great picture of faithfulness. Through this kind of a short story of the the service and the life of one man. And I have no doubt that we're going to see some great applications for all of us. And not just as we try to serve the Lord but maybe more so and maybe more importantly as we're trying to serve those around us that the Lord has given us opportunity to serve. So let's pray and we'll jump in this morning. Um, Father, we thank you so much. Uh, Lord, we thank you for all the things that you're doing here through our church body, Lord, the different opportunities uh, that we have, Lord. We thank you for um, those within the body that you've gifted and called to minister, Lord. We, we look forward to this coming year, Lord, and um, what you'll do through your word, Lord, as we all um, corporately are, uh, are reading through together, Father. We look forward as well, uh, even now, to what you're doing this morning, Lord, through your word. We pray that you would be our teacher, 
Lord, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord, and most importantly, that we would be open to that ministry, Lord. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what an encouraging text I think it was we looked at last time. We saw the Lord, remember, raise up that very first set of seven servants, right? These deacons. And he raised them up right there from the midst of these first century, these first believers. They were men who it said were full of wisdom and they were full of the Holy Spirit. They were supernaturally burdened and then gifted and then equipped to minister practically as they oversaw kind of the care for and the the concern over the distribution of the support to all of these widows. And when we left off, Luke kind of left us with one of these little progress reports that he drops in there every once in a while. Remember in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6, we finished up, it said that the word of God spread, and it did it in multiple translations, as we've just seen in multiple colors. But the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples was multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So here we said this was another one of these clearly connected conclusions, right, to a situation that had threatened the unity of the church and had threatened the work that the Lord was doing through the church as we saw this kind of fresh move of the Holy Spirit working so powerfully through the Word of God, right, bringing more and more souls to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Even, Luke tells us, a great many of the priests, right? These men who were steeped in the traditions and the rituals of Judaism, serving there in the temple, I think as they saw the reality of the faith and the service of these early believers one to another, it won them to faith as well. So here Luke continues. Now he's going to focus his account on one of these men. One of these men through whom the Lord was working mightily. And in fact, the balance of Acts chapter 6 And the whole of Acts chapter 7 center on the ministry and the martyrdom of Stephen. Did I spoil that for anybody? Did you you not know that by the end of the next chapter, Stephen is going to be with the Lord? And though his story, I think, is so super short, it is so very powerful because we're going to see he was faithful both in life, he was faithful in death, and therefore he's a great example for us to follow. But for now, he's been recently appointed, right, to this team caring for the widows. And the very next thing we read in verse 1 of chapter 6, sorry, verse 8 of chapter 6, is about Stephen's spirit-powered ministry. Look what it says there. It says that Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Wow, so Stephen was not only this table-serving deacon, but the Lord now started to use him mightily as this kind of miracle-working wonder. And understand, up until this point, it was only the apostles, and of course the Lord Jesus himself, 
who had ever performed these kind of miracles. But now God starts working also through Stephen to start to do some of these kinds of things. Now, Luke doesn't specifically tell us what kinds of miracles that Stephen was performing, but I think that we can safely assume that they were probably similar to the ones that the other apostles and that Jesus had been performing. And these were all miracles which brought the grace of God to bear on and, and, and bring relief to different situations where there was human suffering. And so you see now Stephen's ministry is expanding, and I think we're going to see there's a few different reasons for that, the first of which is because he was faithful. You were in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he says that those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So it's as though here as Stephen is serving diligently and as he is ministering faithfully in his deacon duties, it's like the Lord says to him, Stephen, I now have a wider ministry for you. I have something more for you to do. And then God put his hand on Stephen and started to really multiply his ministry. In God's economy... The reward for faithfulness in our service is greater service to be faithful in. And you remember, again, in Matthew 25, we talked about that parable of the talents, which, you know, taught on the importance of this kind of faithfulness two different times. Remember that Jesus said that the... um, The overseer said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. So the take home is simple. If we're faithful in a little place, God's going to give us a larger place to be faithful. If we're faithful in the things that seem small, he's going to put us in a place over things that are larger. So important if we really desire to be used by the Lord that we're simply faithful in whatever God has given us to do, wherever he has us doing it. Now, that can be in a ministry situation. It can also be in our workplaces, certainly in our homes, and all the different relationships in our lives. And the scriptures are very clear, right? It says in Zechariah 4, we're not to despise the days of small things. And yet I think we see that so many people in all of these different settings, they're so seemingly hesitant to do those smaller or insignificant tasks, right? They want something bigger, something better, and they feel sometimes that that kind of practical service or just, you know, serving in those small ways is somehow beneath them. And yet the way of the Lord is clearly we first prove ourselves in the smaller things And as we're faithful in those things, he'll give us greater things to do. And Stephen, of course, models this beautifully. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that he was first even nominated by the people to be one of these first seven servants? Well, I believe it's probably because he was already faithfully serving. Now, why do you think it was that then he was approved by the apostles to be one of the seven, again, I think it's because they too had seen the reality of his faithful service. And so now here, just two verses later, we see all of a sudden he's doing these great wonders and these miracles amongst the people because, you guessed it, he just continued serving 
faithfully, and so God gave him even more to do. But I want us to see this too. It's not just that he was faithful, but it's how he was faithful. Notice Luke is very clear to tell us that Stephen was faithfully fulfilling this ministry because he was walking, it says, in the full of faith and of power. Right? Stephen was a man who was walking in the fullness, not of his own strength, not of his own ability, not of his own energy, but in the fullness of the Spirit. And what's interesting about that verse is there's actually some amount of discussion about whether Luke's original text said that Stephen was full of faith and power or that he was full of grace and power. And the honest answer is, I like them both. Right? And the meaning is substantially the same because to live by faith is to walk in God's grace, which is exactly the place that we want to be. Right? We want to be walking surrendered to him and we want to give control of our lives over to him, control of every aspect, right? our, our interests, our schedules, our emotions, our feelings. That's why Paul would write to the Romans that we, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, right? We're supposed to submit ourselves fully and completely because it's only as we do this, as we die to our will and live for his will, then we start to see him working increasingly in and through our lives. And what's interesting, I think, about Stephen is when we put together all of what we've learned about him in these few verses, we see that he was a man who was full of or controlled by five different things. Back in, in verse 3, it says he was full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. In verse 5, it said he was full of faith. And then here, we see that he was full of grace and power. What a great testimony, right, for us to say that we are controlled by, that we are full of those same things. And I would suggest it was because he was already walking in these things that that's why the Lord was able to use him in even more powerful ways. And it's a great reminder for us, I think, that if we just take care of our walk, we can leave it to the Lord to take care of our ministry. I think as we continue on here, we're going to see that Stephen's powerful ministry wasn't just limited to serving tables. It wasn't even just limited to working miracles. But we're going to see that Stephen had a real passion for lost souls, and he had a preaching ministry as well. And that made him a perfect target for some renewed opposition. Look at verse 9. It says that then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. So here we have Stephen, right, boldly proclaiming and declaring the truths of the gospel, and it caused some pretty great kind of consternation that rose up from those people who were opposing him, right, the enemies of the church. And specifically, it was now coming from the members of one of these many synagogues that were located throughout Jerusalem. Now, separate from the temple, 
These synagogues were places where the Jews would gather weekly on the Sabbath day for instruction in the law. And there were hundreds of these synagogues just there in Jerusalem. And each one of the synagogues was named for the people who met there. So this, the freedmen were descendants of the Jews who had previously been in bondage, but had now somehow won their freedom from Rome. Cyrene was a city in Africa, and some of these Jews had apparently settled from there now in Jerusalem. The Alexandrian Jews would have come from that Egyptian seaport by the same name. Asia, of course, was a province of Asia Minor, and it was made up of these three different territories. And Cilicia was the southernmost province of that area. Now, it's significant that Luke specifically mentions Cilicia because within this province was the city of Tarsus from which the apostle Paul at this point called Saul would have come which is to say it is more than possible that Paul would have been one of those who heard uh, Stephen preach here in that synagogue and stood up to dispute to, to debate and to dispute with him. And what I think is really significant is that we've seen all of the apostles, so far they've been engaging there in the temple courts with the religious leaders, but here we see that now the Lord is using others kind of to spread the ministry out into the synagogues. So this is really kind of that work in the trenches. Now we have these individual believers engaged not necessarily with the thousands or preaching to the multitudes, but now they're face-to-face, right? They're one-on-one. And it was here where these seeds of faith were possibly first planted, but certainly watered into the then hardened heart of this man who would eventually become the most prolific apostle. He would become the most accomplished Christian theologian. He would have the most effective church planting ministry. He would be the most effective missionary ever within the early Christian church. And of course, that's the apostle Paul. And understand that those seeds were watered not by the Apostle Peter, not by the Apostle John, but they were watered by Deacon Stephen. Now we've talked about the fact that Paul, Saul, had very likely been present during some of Peter's sermons there to the multitudes. He was certainly a member of the Sanhedrin. He would have heard Peter speak. And yet it was here in the synagogue, as he was able to engage with Stephen, this was his only opportunity for that kind of discussion and debate. This was the opportunity for this great theological mind to start to wrestle with this brand new Revelation and these new teachings. And I can tell you, I have no doubt that his conversations with Stephen stuck with him. As he was mulling over these things for years to come, and as the Spirit was preparing his heart to surrender to Jesus on the Damascus Road. And it was Stephen who had a very active part to play in this process. So all of that to say simply this, 
Never underestimate your own personal witness. Never underestimate your ministry as you simply continue to serve faithfully right where God has you. Because think about it this way. Especially in our culture, there is no shortage of great preachers with these large-scale platforms where people are hearing the gospel message, seeds are being planted, and yet those seeds need to be what? They need to be watered. And the chances of, you know, Greg Laurie or Brian Houston or Louis Giglio or whoever your favorite is, the chances of those guys swinging in to follow up are slim to none. And yet we're here. We're here planting, and we're here watering, and we're here ministering. Maybe we're even here disputing as the Lord is bringing that person along the path to salvation. It's like the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the increase. And then he says, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And I have to wonder, as I think about that verse, whether the Apostle Paul thought about Deacon Stephen and the way that he helped Paul come along in his faith. And Paul's writing these words years, years later. We need to be faithful to minister to everyone by the grace of God, even if they seem to be so antagonistic to the things that we're sharing because who knows you may very well be ministering to the next apostle Paul right here's Stephen right sharing the word with these people they'd suddenly they'd stand up in the meetings they'd ask questions they'd find fault and yet look next at what Luke tells us in verse 10 it says that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke So these zealous Jews proved no match for Stephen as they tried to dispute with Stephen because the words he spoke and the power that he spoke them with were absolutely irresistible. And yet, that's actually not surprising at all, is it? It shouldn't be a surprise at all because Luke as much as tells us here that it was never a fair match to begin with because it wasn't Stephen that they were actually disputing and debating. It was the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? There's certainly no indication that Stephen in and of himself was smarter or better educated or a better debater than these Jews. In fact, the opposite is probably true. Because apart from the ministry of the Spirit, Stephen most certainly was intellectually intellectually outnumbered by these men. Understand, I don't want to take anything away from Stephen, but these were some of the greatest minds in Judaism. Right, Alexandria that's mentioned here, that's the city, it has this rich, rich academic history. It's the city in which was the most famous library of all the classical antiquities. It's the city from which the Septuagint, right, which was the primary Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, it originated there in Alexandria. So these were learned scholarly men, and yet 
empowered by the Holy Spirit, here's Deacon Stephen showing greater wisdom than any of them, including Saul, which must have just driven him crazy. It says they were unable to resist that wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. If you're anything like me, there are times and most times when I don't feel well enough equipped in my faith, right? We don't have all of the answers about our faith, but I want you to be encouraged as you're sharing the word with others. If you're filled with, if you're under the control of the Holy Spirit, then what you'll find is you'll find yourself sharing with those people the very things that the Holy Spirit is simultaneously sharing with you, and you will be amazed at your own wisdom, stuff you didn't know that you even knew, insights you didn't even know you had will come out as you're sharing with other people if you're submitted and you've given over control of that situation to the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised this in Luke 21. He says that for those who would witness for him, he said, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So here we see a fulfillment of that promise because of the faithfulness of Stephen. Because of his faithfulness, that unlocked the Lord's promise here. So these brilliant men are starting to argue with him. They couldn't stand up against this wisdom. And what we're going to see next time, we're back in the book of Acts, as we look at Stephen's extended defense, I'm going to let you in right now on a little secret. Here's the secret of Stephen's success. In his sermon in chapter 7, we're going to see that Stephen's speech is saturated with the scriptures. And because of that, it confounds these religious leaders who claimed to have the correct interpretation of the scriptures because what was happening is the spirit was using that living, active word of God to accomplish The purpose of God, according to the promise of God, he gives to us in Isaiah 55 where he says, My word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. And when God's word is allowed to prevail and when God's word is allowed to kind of prosper in any given situation, there is no problem that can't be solved. There is no task that can't be accomplished. There's no argument that can't be won because God's wisdom overwhelms all of those things. Paul tells us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And so we can trust in it for our lives and for our ministries. Give God's wisdom a chance today by bathing your biggest difficulty in the word and letting the word really speak to that situation and then be obedient to what the word says and watch the way the Lord works it out. Here, those who were coming against Stephen, they were outgunned by Stephen. They couldn't beat his logic. They couldn't resist his reasoning. They couldn't withstand his persuasive speech. So by walking faithfully, full of faith, 
full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen was more than a match for these guys who outmatched him. And when they couldn't accuse him openly, watch what they do now underhandedly. It says in verse 11 that then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. Now, it's kind of interesting. This is the third of four different times in the book of Acts when we're going to see the followers of Jesus appear on trial before this Jewish court. And the others, of course, we've seen recently. We saw Peter and John there in chapter 4. We saw Peter and all of the rest of the apostles in chapter 5. Stephen is here in chapter 6 and 7. And then finally, in chapter 22, we're going to see the apostle Paul himself stand before this very council of which he was previously a part. And all of this, again, to just say that Stephen the deacon is included here with some pretty powerful company. Why? You guessed it, because he was faithful. And don't miss the fact that because his opponents couldn't win this fight fairly, Watch again, they're using these secret strategies and they're starting out by turning popular opinion against Stephen. Remember, we've learned that the early church was actually very popular with the people. And why wouldn't they be? Right? They were preaching love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. They were bringing healing and wholeness and hope and they were bringing relief to people's sufferings. But even with all of that, we see here that they were still subject to the strategies of the enemy. The opponents of Stephen knew that they couldn't do anything against him until they got popular opinion on their side. But as soon as they did it, they acted quickly. And over and over in the scriptures, we are reminded that popular opinion can be so easily shaped. Right? These very same crowds that praised Jesus were the same crowds that were then crying out for his crucifixion. The very same crowds who loved the apostles now are starting to cry out against Stephen. And this is why we can't let popular opinion shape the vision or the focus either of the church or of our own lives. We have to let that rest on God's word. It's absolutely crazy today. The current current of our culture is shifting so fast that it's hard to even keep up. You see people out there searching for what's right and what's wrong only to find out that what was right is now wrong and what was wrong is now right until next month or next year or maybe just next week when it all changes and it reverts right back to what it had been before. And yet the Lord doesn't change, does he? It says in Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ is the same, say it with me, yesterday, today, and forever. And it's this unchanging nature of Jesus that provides the bedrock for us in all of our Christian conduct. 
because it's that unchanging nature of Jesus, the way that it's revealed in the Bible, that's the same nature of Jesus that should be revealed in each one of us as his followers. I don't know about you guys, but keeping up with this changing world, I find to be absolutely exhausting. And yet, when we're able to just rest in that rock-solid nature of Jesus, then we start to see that there's peace. And that's where we start to see that there's solace. And we find it even in the face of difficulty. Because look here for Stephen. Popular opinion has turned, right? He's been arrested. He's appearing here before the council. Now watch the way the council is going to resort to some very familiar tactics. It says in verse 13 that they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So effectively, essentially, Stephen was accused of speaking blasphemy against the temple and against the Jewish law, which was tantamount to charging him with undermining the entire Jewish faith. So these were the accusations against Stephen. And don't they sound familiar? Because these were some of the very same accusations that they leveled against, fill in the blank, Jesus. You guys thought I missed that? Like I forgot what I was going to say? That was like a fill in the blank. Can we just agree that it's a good thing when we get accused of the very same things that Jesus was accused of. And notice they didn't just accuse Stephen of the same things, but notice they go about this in the very same way. They treated Stephen just like they had treated Jesus, hiring false witnesses, stirring up the people. Finally, after listening to the false witnesses, and then after twisting the words of even those witnesses, they execute him. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that Stephen was teaching, but we can guess what it was and why these guys would take issue with it. They were accusing him of these things because no doubt Stephen had clearly taught that Jesus was greater than Moses. So they said he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses. No doubt he taught that Jesus was God. So to them, that was blasphemous words against God. He no doubt said Jesus was greater than this temple, so, of course, he was speaking blasphemous words against the holy place. No doubt he tried to explain to them the way that Jesus was fulfillment of the law. So now he's speaking blasphemous words against the law. He tried to tell them that Jesus was greater than their customs and that their traditions, which is why they said that, you know, that he was going to destroy this place and change the customs. And surely... Stephen surely never taught anything against Moses or against God, but it was just in lifting Jesus up that he had his words twisted and these false accusations were brought against him. Maybe you've experienced this, but people for the most part are okay with Jesus until we elevate him to his rightful place. Until we show that he isn't just a great teacher. He wasn't simply a good man. He isn't just one of many prophets. 
as we said recently, that he's not a helper, that he is the savior and that belief in him supersedes all other beliefs, right? Jesus himself was the one who said that I am what? The way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the father except through me. So the bottom line here for these Jews, they were jealous over their law. They couldn't comprehend the way that Christ had come to fulfill the law and to bring in a whole new relationship with the Lord. They were proud of the temple. They refused to believe that the Lord would possibly let it come to ruin. And Stephen was facing the very same spiritual blindness that Jeremiah faced in his ministry and that Jesus faced in his these people that were blinded by tradition. And as we continue in the book of Acts, we're going to see that the church faced this same kind of opposition because of Jewish tradition for years and years to come. They faced it within their own ranks. They faced it from outside. Right? For Stephen, this was a very serious scene, just like it was for Jesus. He is on trial for his life. Right, before the highest religious court that he could face. He was being examined by these honored, educated, powerful men. He'd been falsely accused and seems to have lost all popular support. And then you kind of get this picture, right? Once they had made their case, everything stops and it gets quiet and they turn and they look to Stephen for his response and look what it says in our last verse, verse 15. It says, and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. This is something I wish we had a picture of, right? Here is Stephen listening to all of these false accusations. No doubt he's seeing all of these expressions of rage and of ridicule and of indignation all over the faces of these men who are accusing him. He's probably feeling their hatred for him, and yet it says that he simply stood there looking at them with this radiant countenance full of love and of trust and of peace and of confidence. He's completely undisturbed by all of these bitter things that were being said. And his, understand, his heart wasn't filled with hatred for them because of their hatred for him, but I think in a sense, his heart was probably filled with joy in realizing that he was standing there and that he was being singled out as Jesus' faithful servant. Now, don't be confused. When Luke says that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel, he didn't have that kind of, you know, angelic, like chubby-cheeked cherub kind of look right, that we see in these kinds of paintings. He also didn't have that look of stern judgment like we picture on the faces of some of the angels in the book of Revelation. But I think that his face was a reflection of his heart, right? It was that perfect peace and that quiet confidence of somebody who really knows and who really trusts God and who has spent time in the presence of God. And I think that's what's so ironic here is that Stephen's face would have had that very same reflected glory that Moses' face had also had as he beheld God intimately. 
One author wrote this, that the description is of a person who is close to God and reflects some of his glory as a result of being in his presence, just the way that Moses had been back in Exodus chapter 34 up there on Mount Sinai. So if you think about it, it's almost like the Lord is saying, guys, this man isn't against Moses. This guy is just like Moses. He also is my faithful servant. Now we're going to see next in chapter 7 that Stephen has plenty to say. Stephen has actually 52 verses worth of stuff to say, which is why we're not covering it today. But what I love is the fact that even before he said one word of any of that, it wasn't necessary for Stephen to speak at all in order to be a witness for Jesus. Because just that glow on his face told everybody that he was a servant of the Lord. It's like God gave witness to Stephen's face by radiating this glory from his face. Did I say face the first time or faith? He gave witness to his faith by radiating glory from his face. And the very same, you guys, should be true of us. Because speaking of Moses, Paul said to the church at Corinth that we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, that we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And then a chapter later, he says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So there should be this kind of a beauty about us that comes from within us, especially as we're sharing with people about the things of the Lord. Our faces should absolutely radiate. There's a great story often told of Charles Spurgeon, right, the Prince of Preachers. It's said that as he was addressing his students concerning their ministry, he said this. He says, men, when you teach on heaven... Let there always be a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a smile on your lips. And then he said, when you teach on hell, your normal face will do just fine. (laughs) So when people look at us, they should see that very same thing that the Sanhedrin saw when they looked at Stephen. Right? It's that mysterious beauty of a life that is fully surrendered to the Lord. People should see something of the glory of Christ reflected in the face of somebody who's following after him. And that's the great thing to keep in mind, I think, as we all head into this Christmas season. Because I don't know what your family gatherings are like, but I imagine that they're filled with some you know, annual encounters. These people that you see once a year, maybe they're both believers, maybe some are unbelievers. But as we're in those situations in these next few weeks, let's just let them see Jesus. Let's let them just see the glow of Jesus. And I think too for Stephen, his face was reflecting that perfect peace in his heart in spite of these dire circumstances that he was in, right? He wasn't filled with terror. He wasn't filled with worry. He wasn't filled with anxiety because he knew that his life was in God's hands and he knew that Jesus never, ever, ever forsakes his people. 
right? As it says in Thessalonians, it says in 2 Thessalonians 3 that the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So we have these false accusations and lies and anger that are flying before the rocks that would soon start to fly, and yet Stephen never reflected hatred. He never reflected any kind of horror, but all he reflected in his face was heaven. And again, I would suggest to you that that peace came as a very real product of his faithfulness because there's no better, there is no safer place for us to be than right in the center of God's will for us as we're simply walking in faith and faithfulness. And I think what we see in Stephen here is such a perfect picture, and I promise we're almost done, of what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, right, where he says that we are his workmanship, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've talked about this glorious fact that God has this specific plan and he has this calling for each one of us individually and uniquely as believers. And now all we need to do is to walk in that plan. Again, notice that the purpose of these prepared in advance works is not just that we would work in them, but that we would walk in them. God's already prepared this path of good works, this perfect path, and all that we need to do is walk in it. Be faithful and walk in it. And so he's given us, as we've seen in these last chapters, he's given each of us these specific spiritual gifts, and he's entrusted us with these unique ministries that the Spirit is directing, and all we need to do is daily kind of discover what that path is, what that plan is that he's uniquely created and crafted for us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And um, Lord, we pray um, as we prepare, Lord, for Christmas and as we prepare for uh, our own Christmas celebration service next week, Lord, I pray that you would help to make these truths Lord, just come to to life, especially in light of this season that we're in, Lord. Who better to be faithful to, Lord, than a God who was so faithful to us? So, Father, we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would minister to our hearts, Lord, in this season. Lord, we do pray even now uh, corporately, Lord, for our Christmas service next week, Lord. We pray that you would bring those hearts, um, Lord, who need to hear the hope of the gospel of your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that it would be a time of celebration for each one of us who already know him. And so, Lord, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.